turn over to the book of Psalms. As you know, we have been coming through the Bible, really having a great time with it, as far as I'm concerned, laying things out. I've enjoyed it, enjoyed preparing it as much as I have teaching it. I hope you've been enjoying it as we come through it. Certainly, uh, it, if you stood back and looked at it so far, you know, you'd have a great opportunity to learn key things in the Bible that probably take you a number of years to the layout where it's already kind of put together for you. And uh, we have been talking about, you know, uh, last week we talked about the book of Job. And I showed you how the book of Job, without a doubt, is probably uh, one of, if not the greatest practical book in the Bible. Uh, there are so much material in Job for our everyday life, you know, from a practical sense of things that we experience, things that we go through. And yet, at the same time, uh, it's a great book that shows you how the devil operates. And uh, the book of Job, as we've seen last week, is a book where, you know, Job gets attacked by the devil. And within all of that, you not only see how you and I get attacked by the devil, but the great picture of how the devil operates behind the scenes. It finds a lot of things for you that we certainly need to know as believers. And then, of course, Job doctrinally, we saw was a picture of the tribulation period, how uh, it's a type of the nation of Israel going through the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, and how that the, you know, like the 42 chapters and the 42 months, and we laid all of that out, and really gave you a kind of like a, composite, a composite of the book of Job if you, if you want to study it and lay it out. And what I suggest you do and is if, you can, if, if you're studying this stuff, whether you're listening to it on a tape or you know, taking your notes, that you go through, and, and as you go through book by book, take that material, lay it out, run it out, and, you know, you put notes in your notebook or in your Bible, and uh, <clears throat> your goal needs to be that at some point in your life you're able to open up any book of the Bible, and there at your fingertips, you know, you have all the information. It's kind of like you're putting your own running commentary together uh, on the books of the Bible as you, as you study the Bible. And if you remember, so far we have uh, been talking about the books of Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, showing you how that they, they, uh, they really focus on the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of weeks ago we talked about the different viewpoints of Christ's return. All of this is stuff that you need to learn and define in your own life. And we showed you how that in Second Chronicles chapter 36 the Jew goes back. He's told to go back. That's the last thing that that Jew sees in his Bible. I've told you how that Second Chronicles chapter 36 is the last book in the Jewish Old Testament. And the last thing that Jew reads every time he finishes his Bible is for him to go back. By the way, you know the last book in our Bible is Malachi. And I don't know if you know it or not, but the last thing you find in Malachi chapter 4 uh, is a remembrance of the coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how that thing works? That last book in the Jewish Bible tells him to go back. The last book in the Old Testament of a Gentile Bible reminds you the theme of the Bible, the Lord's coming back. So that's how the Bible all goes together. Then we saw in Ezra that the Jew did go back exactly like he did in 1918. We saw in the book of Nehemiah how that he rebuilt like he did in 1948. And we saw in the book of Esther uh, how the book of Esther is a picture of the end times of the Gentile, or the end of the times of the Gentiles, and in the beginning of the first half years, half of the tribulation period. And then last week, the book of Job, 
how the book of Job focuses on the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So from those order of the books in the Bible, and I know today, and I talked about this Thursday night a little bit, I know today wherever you go, whatever you read, and whatever you hear, 99% of it is going to be contrary to what I just told you, because nobody today believes the Bible is of that kind of valuable information. Everybody today that believes the Bible is just a book, and they believe it's a book that man, you know, that God obviously inspired someplace along the line once upon a time, and then man has taken that and made translations of it, and the translations are nothing more than man's attempt to convey to you uh, what God's thoughts were. But there isn't anybody hardly in the world today that believes that the Bible, that you can have a Bible that is everything exactly, perfectly the way that God wants you to do. And it's really just two opinions. And I told you this Thursday night. Most of Christianity's opinion is that God inspired the book someplace along the line, and then man took over from there and brought the best attempt that he could to give you a, a, a picture of what God wanted you to say. I take just the opposite. My position is that God obviously inspired it, God never lost control of his Bible anywhere through history, and God just allowed man to be part of the process to bring you and I a perfect, inerrant, absolutely, perfectly inspired copy of his mind that you and I as believers in any age and dispensation could have the exact, exact words of God that God wanted you to have to get God's viewpoint on everything in life. And it simply comes down to those two perspectives. Now today we come to the book of Psalms. And where Second Chronicles tells them to go back, where Ezra tells them to uh, go back, where they do go back, Nehemiah tells them to rebuild, Esther shows you the end of the times of the Gentiles, and Job shows you the tribulation period, Psalm brings you in and shows you the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every event in your Bible in a premillennial form based on the orders of the books in a King James 1611 authorized version, God's holy inspired word. So we see from that how this thing begins to lay itself out and how in a, an incredible way uh, all of this material uh, fits together. Now, I want to read for you Psalms chapter 1 this morning. And I want to read the, read the first three verses here and we're going to kind of work from here. It says this, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us, and we ask you in a very special way today that you'll help us understand your word, that we'll look deep within it, Father, that we'll see all the ramifications of it in our lives. Help us to leave here today, Father. Help us to leave here today, Father, <coughs> with the... Uh, word of God in our hearts. We thank you for the families that are here today, Father, and for the sons and daughters that love your word, that love this book, and that, Lord, uh, just want to grow from it as families begin to uh, learn, learn the great realities of the word of God together and to grow together and to love you more as they love each other and love that book. And we'll thank you for all of that, Lord, that you've given us. Help us to glean from your word today all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, if you would read any book on the book of Psalms, it would tell you that Psalms chapter 1 is really a prelude to the whole book. And I believe that to be true. I think that's true. In fact, I know it to be true. Because when you begin to come through the book of Psalms, you're going to find out that the book of Psalms is a book written about a man. 
In fact, it's written about two men. In the Bible, you have two men. One is a wise man, one is a foolish man. And you're going to find in the book of Psalms, as the other wisdom books in the Bible, a story written about those two men. And we're going to talk about those two men today as they fit into life historically, doctrinally, and inspirationally. So when we become into Psalms chapter 1, when he says, blessed is the man, and we already know that the book of Psalms doctrinally is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. And when we're done today, hopefully, when we're done today, we're going to lay out for you all the different aspects of the book of Psalms. I'm not going to be able to give you all the information, but I'm going to give you enough information that you'll have the ability to find everything out and certainly be able to leave here today with the material either on tape or in your notebook that you can go home and, and understand the book of Psalms as far as how it breaks down. All right, first of all, he says this, Blessed is the man. Now that man, doctrinally, is the nation of Israel. Well, you know that when you come through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find that Israel is portrayed in different ways. Now, I've told you this before. You're going to find that every illustration in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the illustration of a blind man, the illustration of a dead man who comes back to life, the illustration like the woman that had an issue of blood that touches the hem of his garment, the young boy that dies and Jesus meets them on the road of the funeral profession and brings him back to life. In John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, who the Bible says Jesus loves, and he died and he comes back to life. You're going to find that every event in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tells you a story about a man or a woman, or in some cases a child, you're going to find that that story is a picture of the nation of Israel's spiritual condition. Now, I just gave you a $100,000 key to figuring out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we're not even there yet. So it's no wonder that, and really, I told you, the whole Bible is built around two men, a wise man and a foolish man. In Matthew chapter 25, it talks about the fact that there were ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. In the Gospels, it talks about a wise man who built his house upon a rock. A foolish man who built his house upon sand. When you read those and study those, you are actually reading stories about men and women that Jesus has told these stories, and the Holy Spirit of God has recorded it, to show you Israel's spiritual condition. So when you come to the book of Psalms chapter 1, in a doctrinal sense, and it says, blessed is the man, that man is the nation of Israel. You remember back in the early part of the book of Exodus, when Israel is called out of Egypt, God said, Israel is my son. Israel is that man. In the book of Matthew, it talks about a, a, an unclean spirit going out of a man walking through dry places, trying to find rest, and findeth none. And then he says to himself, I will return to the house from which I came from. And the Bible says he takes seven more spirits, more wicked than himself, and the last state of that man was worse than the beginning. And the next verse he says, Even so it shall it be with this wicked generation. That man is talking about the nation of Israel. The demons going back to his house is the whole house of the nation of Israel. And you're seeing there right in the chapters that deal with Israel's rejection of the Holy Spirit of God by equating the Spirit of God with the spirit of Beelzebub, 
where God puts this story about a man who is possessed with an unclean spirit. That man is Israel. In Psalms chapter 1, when it says, Blessed is the man, that man is Israel. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Israel had been walking in the, time, in the counsel of the ungodly. She had been under the influence of the times of the Gentiles for many, many hundreds of years. Now when the Lord comes back and establishes His kingdom, she's no longer walking in the counsel of the ungodly. She's no under the UN mandates or the United Nations mandates. She's no under longer the domination of any Arab nation. She now is from out from under the counsel of the ungodly, including her own apostate leaders that have led her astray. She is no longer dealing with that. This man now is blessed because, Israel is now blessed because she is not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, nor is she standing in the way of sinners, nor is she sitting in the seat of the scornful. Ah, but verse 2, Israel's light, delight now is the law of the Lord, and in this law does she meditate day and night. Picture of the millennial reign of Christ. Picture of Israel <coughs> being restored as she is in Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, and 38, <coughs> as she is in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. Now a picture of her in the millennium, like it's talked about when he makes the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, and the millennial reign of Christ laid out for you in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Now <coughs> Israel is in the land. Her delight is the law of the Lord, and she meditates in this law day and night. Oh, and now, once she's in the land, the Bible says that she, or he, shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters. There's only one place this could fall. Oh, and I've heard every expose on it, you know, how it's a picture of this and it's a picture of that. And the bottom line is, when we're looking at this thing doctrinally, we're seeing that Israel is that tree, that tree, that tree that is planted by the river of the waters. And if you'd go back and study Ezekiel chapter 47, and I told you, I told you that the greatest passages in all of the Bible that deal with the restoration of the nation of Israel is Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Eight chapters in your Bible that without a doubt are unprecedented in giving you the information you need to figure out and show you every aspect of the millennial reign of Christ. That thousand year period when God puts Israel in the land and they gravitate to His Word and they become His people once again they no longer follow the counsel of the ungodly. Now they are blessed because they are with Him. And the Bible says when God sets that temple in the middle of Jerusalem, and when God sets that temple and puts the holy oblation, the Bible says that water, a stream of water, comes out of that holy oblation, runs down through the south end of Jerusalem, goes into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea becomes alive. Right now it's dead. But then that day, it runs into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea becomes alive. That water spreads into the tributaries, and that's when the Bible says the desert shall bloom like a rose. It comes on through the Dead Sea and goes into the Mediterranean, and wherever that water touches, it gives light. And lo and behold, in Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12, you will find planted along that waterway the trees. One tree after another a picture of the nation of Israel now planted by God by the river of waters which comes out of the holy oblation, the sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem for all of eternity. And now the Bible says, as we continue on here, that it shall, he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. My, 
We just saw it last week when we were coming through this and a week before. How about the times and the seasons where Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, talking to the church, of the times and seasons, you have no need that I run unto you. We talked about Matthew chapter 24, about the fig tree bearing fruit at the time of Israel becoming a nation in 1948, putting forth its leaves. I showed you in Saga Solomon chapter 2 how at the rapture of the church she has green figs. And now in the millennium, when Christ comes back, just like I told you three weeks ago, now she brings forth her fruit in her seasons. Then it says, her leaf, His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. A picture of the nation of Israel being back in the land, the land being his, and the new covenant that God establishes with them that's just laid out in Hebrews chapter 8. She's back in the land. She's by the river of waters coming out of the holy oblation. And whatever Israel does now, Israel will be blessed because Israel, as the Son of God, is returned to her father. And now God is with him and God is blessing him in a national corporate sense as the people of God and that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 11, when it talks about the fact that the last Gentile gets saved, it simply says, and then shall all Israel be saved. That's what we're talking about. So you see the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a great book from a doctrinal standpoint. Because Psalms chapter 1 is the key to the whole book. Psalms chapter 1, as you'll see here as we go through this, but in Psalm chapter 1, doctrinally, and I put the emphasis on doctrinally now, as it refers to the second coming of Christ, the book of Psalms chapter 1 is a picture of the nation of Israel. And you're going to find that now that we start coming through the Bible, that the book of Psalms, without a doubt, is the most read book in all the Bible. I believe it's the most loved book in all the Bible. I know for me, my favorite book is the book of Psalms. I know that the book of Psalms, in most people's minds, is an incredible book. And there's for some reasons for that. The first reason is that the book of Psalms is the key to the Christian life. Everything that you're going to get into in your life is found uh, in the book of Psalms. You know what? The book of Psalms contains every emotion that any human being is ever going to feel. That's why people are drawn to it when they have trouble. You'd think they'd be drawn to the book of Job. And you may be drawn to the book of Job for a fleeting moment, thinking that your situation is like Job's or what Job went through. But you know what? When you want, when you want comfort, when you want the balm of Gilead applied to your wound, of your soul, when you want something in your heart that's going to give you peace in troubled times, you're going to go to the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms contains every human emotion that you and I are going to feel and experience. And as a human being, as far as I am concerned, there's no other book in the Bible that touches us so deeply in such an intimate way as the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms means, means uh, praise or prayer. We find in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that they, that they would sing them. The Bible says, Let the word of Christ dwell, at you, dwell in you with all wisdom, uh, uh, all richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing another other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They were designed to be songs. They were designed to be sung. David wrote many of them, I'm sure, when he's out there watching his sheep throughout his life. And they're incredible from the aspect that in many ways they depict. They depict 
our innermost feelings. I heard one time a number of years ago, a psychologist, an unsaved psychologist, say that the first, that the first sign uh, of somebody that was losing their mind or the first sign of somebody that had some mental instability was the fact that they would talk to themselves when there was no one else around in the sense of not just saying, boy, I just screwed that up or, oh boy, no, but in the sense of like we're having a regular conversation but nobody else is there. I remember one time when I was in the army, I had the flu really bad. And they put me in the hospital. And I'll never forget this. And after about two or three days, you know, I got feeling well, but I was still hacking up a lot of stuff. And, you know, they, they had me laying in there, you know, and it was nothing more boring than a military hospital. So I'm, I'm walking around, you know, I'm, I'm walking around checking things out because, you know, just get out of bed for a while. And I evidently had strayed into the psychiatric ward. <laughs> this is a true story. I mean, I tell you some stories that aren't true just because of lighting things up. And this is one of them. No, I mean, this is not one of them. This is a true story. And I never forget, I walked in there, and I'm just kind of walking around, you know, I had my robe on, you know, and <clears throat> checking things out, and, <clears throat> you know, just a young guy. And, and, I, and, I saw, and, I, and I saw over there a guy that was, went into a room, and people were sitting around watching television, and I, I saw a guy that was like this. He was walking like this. And he was just walking, looking around like I was doing. You know, and I thought maybe, you know, he hurt his arm, you know, or something, and, and he, I, I'm walking around there, and I walked over to him, and I said, hey, I said, how you doing? He didn't answer me. And I, I, I said, you know, me being the congener, I said, hey, I said, you got a bad arm, huh? He looked out at me, and he said, what's the matter with you? Can't you see my giraffe? He was walking his giraffe. I said, yeah, nice one. <clears throat> see you later. That's the kind of talking to yourself I'm talking about. You see what I'm saying? He had a pet giraffe, walking his giraffe. Okay. I think he was my company commander a little bit later on. But anyway, I don't know. <clears throat> but I'm thinking to myself, and somebody said, you know, I read this. They say, you know what? When somebody begins to talk to themselves in a way where they really carry on a conversation, it begins to show some instability. And I thought to myself when I read that, you know what, boy, if that isn't a picture of the world trying to paint a picture of a child of God as somebody that is unstable. Because you know what, as a Christian, you ought to talk to yourself all the time. And you know what else, the book of Psalms is a book about a man talking to himself. It's somebody looking inside himself, talking about himself, and talking about to God about himself. And that's why the book of Psalms is an incredible book. It means praise or prayer. And much of it is a picture of somebody speaking to God in the course of their everyday life, as you're going to see as we come on through here. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but when we entered into the book of Job last week, I didn't say anything last week because I had so much to say. I even know why I'm saying it today because i got so much to say, but i got to say it someplace, so I might as well just say it now. We entered last week into another five-book study. I told you how the Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, and Psalms showed you a five or six book study of the order of the books of the premillennial return of the Lord that you need to get down in your Bible. But now, when we entered into Job, we entered into the first of the five wisdom books in the Bible. There's five wisdom books in your Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, 
on the Song of Solomon. Now these five books, whether you know it or not, form the foundation of truth in your Bible. Everything else in the Bible stems from these five books. Every issue and doctrine that Paul talks about in the New Testament writings. Every story found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every illustration found in the Old Testament, every story of the life of David, the life of Abraham, the life of Jacob, the life of Joseph, the life of Noah, the life of Adam, you wherever you go. The principles that hold those stories together. The concepts that make those stories work. The, the connecting rods that pull all of that material together that make the Bible, even though it's 66 books, one cohesive writing of God that goes and flows together are those five wisdom books. Now in time, in time, not today, in time, if you're ever going to really attain anything for God as far as God using your life in the ministry you're going to have to get a handle on these five books. You're going to have to learn them. And in time, uh, you know, I, I've, I've looked over the, over the country for years and years and years, you know, and I've seen, I've seen men that are in the ministry and men that are pastoring churches and, and, and all of the deficiencies that they, they have. I, I've known pastors that, you know, that actually when somebody in their church came to them with a problem, they just looked at them and they said, you know what, I'm not equipped to handle this problem. I've actually heard him say, well, you know what? That's not really my line. My line is I do this really well as a pastor, but I don't do this. And I, I've actually stood there and heard men make excuses to people in those churches. And I'm telling you, if you're ever going to minister for God, if you're ever going to get to the point, well, let me take that back. If you're ever going to be effective in ministry for God, you're going to come to a great conclusion. It takes more than a piece of paper that says you're ordained to make you a pastor. And everybody seems to want to have one of them today. I got three of them. You can have all three of mine if you want. Because when you come with dealing with people, oh, I know it's impressive, and I know, you know, the higher, more education you get, you know, and the big, oh, I know how it goes, man. I know. I've been through that. I understand it. But I'm telling you something. These books... Form the foundation of truth in your Bible, and everything in your Bible stems from there. And in time, you're going to have to learn these books, or at least get a handle on these books, because it's these books that are really going to qualify you for ministry. Now, you take the book of Job. From a doctrinal standpoint, when I study the book of Job, the first things I have to learn about my Bible are things about God. It does you no good to learn about things about yourself till you learn about things of God first. And when I study the book of Job from a doctrinal standpoint about God, everything I need to know about God will be in these five books. And I'm not kidding you. I mean, I'm glad I got the rest of the Bible. But I'm telling you, if you can crack these five books and you can get them down and you see it from God's standpoint and get the material that God... Everything else in your Bible becomes illuminable. Everything else in your Bible becomes alive. It is the spark plug to your Bible that really shows you everything because when you come to the book of Job, the first thing you understand from the book of Job is how God suffered. And you learn from the book of Job the suffering of God. From the book of Psalms, you learn... The heart of God. From the book of Proverbs, you learn the mind of God. 
And from the book of Ecclesiastes, you learn the mind of the Spirit of God. And in the book of Song of Solomon, you learn the mind of Christ. And when you put those five concepts about God into your life, and how many times, and this is exactly what I mean when I tell you that the job of every Christian, the job of every man, every woman, everybody who is going to want to be used of God in some form or fashion in their life, your number one job from the Word of God is to find out what God's opinion is on everything in life and then make that your opinion. And you start that out by understanding the sufferings of God. How God suffered for you. You'll never be worth a hoot in a windstorm till you, as a Christian, till you understand the suffering of God and how it affects your life. We talked about it last week. Perspective. The book of Psalms, which we're into today, will show you the heart of God. And you will come away understanding what God loves. You'll understand why God loves it. In the book of Proverbs, you'll understand the mind of God. You'll begin to see how God looks at every issue of life on planet earth. And you'll begin to put together his concept, making it your concept. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find the mind of the Spirit. You'll find out where God goes, what he's doing. You'll find out why God does things the way that he does. You'll find out how God looks at man as man looks at himself. You'll find how God looks at man's reasoning how, and how God reasons. Now when you come to the book of Song of Solomon, you'll find the mind of Christ. As a child of God, that's what Paul was talking about when he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible book from the aspect of doctrine and God. Now... The practical standpoint, oh my, oh my, my. Want to talk about the reality of life? Where on one hand, doctrinally, the book of Job shows me the suffering of God. From a practical standpoint, you know what it does? The book of Job shows me an unhappy man. The book of Psalms shows me a happy man. The book of Proverbs shows me a wise man. The book of Ecclesiastes shows me a worldly man. And the book of Song of Solomon shows me a godly man. Because when I come through the book of Job from a practical reality of life standpoint, I find, as we said last week, suffering defined. I now have a yardstick to judge my suffering from God's suffering to determine if my suffering is really suffering at all. In the book of Psalms, I find a happy man. And I find the key to happiness. The key to happiness is not having a lot of things. The key to happiness is having one thing, that book. And in the book of Psalms, I find everything I need to know. And we'll see it as we get through this thing, because we're going to come back to Psalms 1 in a minute, and I'm going to show it to you from a practical standpoint. The book of Proverbs shows me a wise man. And in the book of Proverbs, I'm learning a great truth, how to balance my emotions. How to balance my emotions to the place that I don't let circumstances carry me away from the principles of the Word of God. Because as a leader... As someone who is a spiritual Christian who really has uh, the Word of God under their belt to the point where you're valuable to God, your emotions are the most fragile thing you've got. You've got to be able to devoid yourself almost from human feeling and experience to be able to stand in a place where you can effectively be what God wants you to be. Now, that doesn't mean you don't feel compassion. It doesn't mean it just means, as the Bible says, he that hath in the book of Proverbs, he that hath no rule over his own spirit, that's your emotions, is like a city broken down without walls. There's more to ministry 
There's more to being a leader. There's more to being to somebody that, that, that stands up and teaches the Bible or this or that than just standing up and saying, well, I know the Bible, listen to me. Let me tell you something. There's a whole concept behind these five books. The book of Ecclesiastes, it's a worldly man. It shows you the worldly system. It shows you why this system works the way that it does. It shows you how this worldly system looks at everything that God puts in that book. And then at the end of the book, God shows you the conclusion of that matter based on how God sees it. Incredible. And in the book of Song of Solomon, the heavenly man, God shows you your relationship with Christ in a very intimate way to the place where it's Probably without an out. Well, let me just say this. There's two books in your Bible that foot down for you your relationship with Christ. In a book of old in the Old Testament is Song of Solomon. In the book of the New Testament, it'd be the book of Ephesians. They go hand in hand, one on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament. But the bottom line is simply this. These five books lay out everything that is contained in God's mind. They lay out everything that's contained in God's heart, in God's soul. They contain the things that God likes. They contain the thing that God dislikes. They show you the things that God hates and how He hates with a perfect hatred. And yet He loves with a perfect love. It shows you God's opinion on every issue in life that you and I are going to be faced with from dealing with your wife and your kids right up to the fact of the political world scene that you've got to make decisions about every day. It shows you God's statutes. It shows you God's judgments. It lays out God's commandments. It lays out God's precepts. It covers God's ordinances. It lays out the laws of God. In other words, in short, what I'm saying is this. It gives you all you need to know about the issues of life and everything you need to know about who God is and how He thinks and what He's doing and where He's going. You know in the Library of Congress right now, in the Library of Congress right now, there are 23 million books. 23 million books on the shelves of the Library of Congress. In addition to that, there are another 10 million booklets and pamphlets added to the 23 million that make 33 million pieces of literature that man has written in the course of time that are put into a library in Congress because the Library of Congress is supposed to be a library that contains all the knowledge that we've amassed as human beings. They're in one place where you can go in as an archaeologist or a historian or a writer or somebody that's a researcher and you can find all the information that is valuable to man about books that are written for the well-being and the well-understanding of man about his life on planet Earth. 23 million books, 10 million pamphlets and booklets, and yet, my friend, God wrote everything you needed to know in five books called the wisdom books of your Bible. That book, my friend, when I say it's the most incredible book this world has ever seen, I think sometimes you don't understand the impact in my mind and my statement when I'm saying that. Without a doubt, it is the most incredible book the world has ever seen. And the book of Psalms, as one of those five wisdom books, plays a key role in you understanding in your life and my life what we need to do. Now, the book of Psalms has five divisions in it. The first division is Psalms chapter 1 through Psalms chapter 41. Part 2 would be Psalms 42 to Psalms 72. Part 3 would be Psalms 73 to Psalms 89. Part 4 would be Psalms 90 to Psalms 106. Part 5 would be Psalms 107 to Psalms 150. It has been stated, and I have read this, though I cannot prove it, but I'll give it to you anyhow for something that 
just that you need to know, that these five divisions line up to the first five books in the Bible, which would make part one Genesis, part two Exodus, part three Leviticus, part four Numbers, and part five Deuteronomy. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've read that many, many times. I've seen that, though I've never had the time to break it down myself. And, uh, but I'll just throw that out to you. Now, I know this. David writes 73 of the Psalms by name. 49 of the Psalms are anonymous. Asaph, Solomon, Ethan, Moses, the sons of Korah, write the rest. And I know this. I've studied this over the years about the book of Psalms. As I said earlier, the book of Psalms is a book containing songs. At one point, or at some point, or however in history, they were sung. And so you find a little phrase in there that represent a musical pause or a musical rest. And it is the word selah. S-E-L-A-H. You'll find it at the end of Psalms. Sometimes you'll find it in the middle of Psalms. And you'll find it as, a, uh, as an insertion where the musician or the singer was to pause or stop in his continuation of singing this psalm. Now, all I know about that is this. That little word, selah, which means rest, the Holy Spirit of God neatly and very cleanly put it into your psalm to designate a great doctrine. Wherever you find the word selah, and I, I don't know how you did it in, my, in your Bible, but in my Bible, I went through with a yellow china marker, and every time I found, saw the word selah, I just kind of colored it yellow. And I want those things to jump out at me when I read the book of Psalms because they're a context grabber. Every time you see the word selah in the book of Psalms, the context will be the second coming of Christ and the millennium because the millennium is a period of rest. And so God put that word selah in the book of Psalms to show you the context of the millennial rest every time you find it. The book of Psalms has so many individual psalms in it that teach so many specific doctrines. Now, here's how I break down my Bible. Now, I'm not saying this is the way you need to do it, but this is the way I need to do it. I learned this over the years. I learned that for every question you ask me on Thursday night or Monday or whenever we have our times together in the Word of God, for any question anybody asks me about the Bible, I know one thing going in. There is a def- if it's a good question. There is a, def- there is a definitive verse chapter, three or four verses, whatever, somewhere in the Bible that defines that question. When I find that definitive passage, or I find that definitive verse, I know that I have the bottom line definition of what you've just asked me. Because here's what the problem is. When you ask me a question, or you ask yourself a question about the Bible, or you're studying a Bible and the question comes up, here's what you've got to do. You've got to begin a process of building Bible principles and Bible doctrines on a baseline to get the answer. That's what the Bible means when the Bible says the Bibles have no private interpretation. You compare Scripture with Scripture. You get this verse, this place, this verse, these series of verses, this chapter, and you begin to build the answer based on absolute truth. This is why, if you don't understand your Bible in the aspect of understand where definitive verses are. When you ask me a question about the Bible, no matter what it may be, or a question about life, a question about this, a question about that, it's immaterial what you ask me. I know the Bible has the answer. 
My job as a child of God, and your job in time, not saying you shouldn't be there now. I know that none of you can be there at this point. But your job in time is to get to that point where you automatically see the definitive passage or the definitive verse that lays out in its lowest common denominator that question, that concept, that issue. And then when you build, you build on top of that from there. In other words, that definitive passage, verse, whatever, begins the foundation of whatever study, whatever question, whatever issue you're going to look at. Getting one that does not take you to the lowest level will not give you the right answer. And you got to, I, I learned this about seven, eight years ago, and when I saw it, it revolutionized my whole concept about the Bible because I realized that in everything in life, it's the key. When you look at something, it is, and, and God bless the man who can look at a problem in a motor or a problem in a computer and immediately can deduct what the problem is just by pushing a couple of buttons, listening to the way it runs, and he deduces very quickly from his experience and his pastime of tinkering with engines, working with computers, exactly what the problem is. He can listen to it and say, well, you know what? It's out of timing. He can listen to it and say, well, you got a bad knock. He can listen, you can, computer can keep bringing up these things that tell you it won't let you go through next phase, and he just, and you're doing every button, and you've done everything, but you get a hammer to it. And he can walk in there and just go like this, and I hate when they do this, hand behind his back, bends over. Go ahead. What do you mean, go ahead? Show me what you did, idiot. What'd you do over there? You know why? Because he, he sleeps and drinks computers. You know why? Because the mechanic got greasy hands. You don't always tell a real mechanic. It doesn't matter where he's at. His fingernails got grease under him. I appreciate that. Because when I need you, I'm going to call you. But you know what? When you spend time doing whatever you do, you could do that same thing. If you've got your own business, if you, whatever you do, if you work wherever you work, if you're really good at it, when something doesn't work right, something breaks, they can call you, you can walk in and you can say, well, this is what here, do this, do that. No, 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 it's got to go this way. At a moment's notice, everything is running again. That's the way you ought to be with the Word of God. You ought to be so in tune with that book that when you see it, you see it in its basic form and its basic common denominator, and then you build from there. You can look at the most complex passage in the Bible, and yet you see it in its most simplistic way. How do you do that? How do you do that? How does somebody take a passage that looks so monstrous in its detail, and I don't even know if monstrous is the word, but I really like it. And you, you look at a passage or a text or somebody asked a question that looks so detailed, so encompassing, and yet when you look at it in its lowest common denominator and you take it from its basic definitive verse passage, it takes that big obtruse passage and question and breaks it down where everybody can leave understanding it. That's the way the Bible is intended for, God, for us, it to work for us. And the book of Psalms has so many of those definitive passages in it. I ain't kidding you. I mean the book of all of the wisdom books do. I mean when you start to get into dealing with people's lives and you start to deal with people, whether it's raising their kids, in their marriages, whatever the case, their own personal walk with God, it's these five wisdom books that will give you over and over and over again the definitive passages that deal with things that break down the complex passages. It's incredible. And the book of Psalms is filled with so many of them. We don't have time to go through them entirely. But I want to give you, I want to show you a few of them. Because some of these, 
things that help me. And some of these are things that, that will really help you define things down the line when you see it. And some of them are just great doctrinal truth. For instance, in Psalms chapter 2, you have a little verse, and I'm quoting it now, not by memory, but it says something like this. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. And yet, when you begin to go through the Bible, you'll find there's four types of laughter in the Bible. One of the most unbelievable studies you'll ever take throughout the whole Bible, and one of the most terrifying. A study that if the average unsaved man understood it, or the average Christian understood it, you wouldn't live your life as lackadaisically as we do today. It's one of the most ominous, one of the most terrible, one of the most unbelieving studies in all the Word of God. The laughter of God. Four kinds of laughter in the Bible. Four kinds of laughter defined for you in the Bible. And God laugh is last. From hence the old expression, he who laughs, laughs, laughs best. He that gets the last laugh. That's God. Psalms chapter 2. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. There's a day coming that God's going to laugh. And it's going to be the last day. And he who laughs, laughs, laughs best. And I'm telling you, one of the most horrific, terrible studies, the most tragic studies, the most frightening study, and yet for a child of God, one of the most unbelievable studies in the Word of God is the laughter of God, which is, de- is begin to be defined in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 16 through Psalm chapter 22, you have Psalms on the crucifixion. I told you before, How that there are passages in the Bible where God takes you beyond the cross. He shows you the things that Christ is feeling. You found some in the book of Job. There's some in Psalms. And there's some in the book of Isaiah. And other places in the Bible. Literal places where God shows you the very thoughts and intents of Christ's heart while he's on the cross or before he goes to the cross. And they're incredible in their study. In Psalms chapter 19, and again in Psalms chapter 33 verse 6, you find the great secrets unlocked to the universe. You know... All of my life, I've always been interested in astronomy, even before I became a Christian. But it was just one of those things that God, in in His sovereign knowledge and wisdom, knowing what I needed and knowing where I was going with the book in my own life, how that I needed all that thing down the line someplace. Because, boy, I'll tell you, once I began to see the reality of Psalms 19, a definitive passage, and Psalms chapter 33, 6, another definitive passage, Boy, I'll tell you what, things began to come in and pop in, and when you start to get those down, and then you take them throughout the Bible, and you lay them out from there, every time I go to a school, every time I go to a Christian group, and they want me to teach the gospel of the stars, or lay out some aspect, my definitive passage will be Psalms 19 and Psalms chapter 33, because that's where it begins. That's where it starts. That's where the definitions are begun to be laid out and defined for you of all this stuff up in outer space and all this stuff up there in the heavens. You know, we give that little bookmark right there and we give those out and and they're, they're neat and everybody likes the picture. But there's a story behind that. For years and years and years, for years and years and years, I had been reading and I could never lay it out and I was, and I, and I, I had it wrong in my mind. But I used to read about the old guys that talked about the, the great Bay Nebula. And they used to talk about the fact that he was saying it was in Orion. And he used to talk about the fact that how that it was a picture of, of a place in the sky where seemingly like the, the outer space was, had, a, had a rip in it. Where it was darkness and there was galaxies and there was, there was nebula and there were star clusters and all that stuff seemed natural. There was one place where there was a rip in the sky and the light coming out behind it was so cascading and so unbelievable. And those old boys at that time used to say that 
And right smack dab in front of it was the head of the dragon, Leviathan, Isaiah chapter 27, and all the stuff that goes along with that. And it was said, they said it was, and, and for years and years and years, before I really got into the Bible, uh, in a pen, when I was reading this stuff and I was learning the Bible, I could not figure that out. I called everybody in the whole world about the Bay Nebula in Orion. And nobody even heard of it. I mean, science people. And then one day I read a book, and a guy talked about the great Bay Nebula in Orion, and he talked about the fact that he gave me one little sentence that nobody else gave me. He said, the Bay, great Bay Nebula in Orion is also called by the scientific world the Horsehead Nebula. He said, we call it the Bay Nebula because we know that in the book of Revelation that the Antichrist comes on a bay horse. And he talked about the fact that the old boys talked about it because they knew what the Bible talked about outer space. They knew where heaven was. And they knew that there were places up there where science couldn't explain it. That it looked like the, that it looked like the, uh, the, the heavens were ripped open. And the light, and I can't explain it to you. The light, you, know, you can see it on the bookmark. The light radiating, you got to see it in black and white. The light is radiating so unbelievable up from under this rip. And everything under it is dark. And you can actually almost see the turbulence as the light shoots out through it. And right smack dab in the middle of this thing is a head that science says is a horse that the Bible says is a great red dragon. And I don't have to tell you what color it is. Science says, well, that's ionized hydrogen gas. Yes. All my life I have listened to your hydrogen ionized gas. But I got a Bible says that he's a great red dragon. And he stands between here and the north. And he wants to keep everybody because that's his domain. That's why in Genesis chapter 1, when God made the, everything he made, he says it was good. When he made the earth, he said it was good. When he made the animals, he said it was good. But when he made the things in outer space, he doesn't say it's good. You know why? Somebody else's domain. And in Isaiah chapter 27, Job chapter 41, Job chapter 42, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation 17, Revelation 18, you find out who he is. Incredible stuff. All from one little definitive verse. Psalms chapter 73 to Psalms chapter 83. You have the Psalms of Asaph. Ten of them. I told you when we studied it. Asaph's the most unique man in the Bible. Where David shows us our representation of the Word of God in our life, Asaph shows you our representation of music in our life. He writes seven of the Psalms containing Bible doctrine that were sung. He's David's chief musician. He's based more on just a singer. He has more than just talent and ability. He has an ability with Bible doctrine and understanding the great truths of the Word of God. Psalms chapter 78. I don't know if you know it or not, but Psalm 78 is the longest chapter in the book of Psalms outside of Psalms chapter 119. Psalms chapter 78 has uh, uh, 72 verses in it, I do believe. 72 verses in it. It's the greatest passage in the Old Testament. You know what it is? It's a definitive passage. It's a definitive passage on the kingdom of heaven. You've got a definitive passage in the Old Testament. You've got a definitive passage in the New Testament. The definitive passage on the kingdom of, a kingdom of heaven is Psalm 78 in the Old Testament. It's Matthew 21, 33 in the New Testament. Shows you the whole concept from beginning to end. How God brought them, where He brought them, what they did, and God finally took away the tabernacle of Shiloh from them. Bang! Start of the time of the Gentiles. Greatest Psalm in the Old Testament on the, on the uh, end of the kingdom of heaven. 
Then in Psalms 104, I don't even know why I should do this one or not. You're like, you're a UFOologist? You want to find out about UFOs, spaceships, and outer space? Psalms 104 is for you. Oh, yeah. You don't have to get Van Donegan's book on Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, the wheel within a wheel to try there's life in outer space. You don't have to get somebody's book that shows you the primitive cavemen writing on the walls, somebody sitting in what looks like a spaceship blasting off, everybody trying to figure it out. All you got to do is go to Psalms 104, Isaiah chapter 27, about a half a dozen other places. You'll get everything you need on what they call UFOlogy today. Psalm 109, the great chapter, the definitive chapter on Judas and the Antichrist. One of the great key chapters in all of the Bible that shows you the events that take place in Judas' life when he's born and how he becomes the Antichrist and connects it with John chapter 6 and every place else in the Bible is the son of perdition. Psalm chapter 119. Wow. Let me tell you something. If the book of Psalms is the heart of the Bible, then Psalm 119 is the soul of the Bible. Psalm 119. Longest chapter in, your, in the whole book of Psalms. 176, 176 verses all dealing with some aspect of the Word of God. All of them showing you what the Word of God should be in your life, what the Word of God needs to be in your life, and shows you how to love the Word of God step by step. In fact, when you come through Psalms 176, or Psalms 119, 1 through 176, if you apply it right, you'll find that four things come to the man of God who has Psalms 119 under his belt. One, he hates sin. Two, he has understanding. Three, he gets God's perspective. Four, he has a love for the Word of God over above everything else in his life. It's as simple as that. All oh, the book of Psalms is incredible. Incredible. Psalms 120 through Psalms 134. You got 15 Psalms. You know what they're called? They're called the Psalms of Degrees. Psalms of Degrees. How many times you looked at those and scratched your head and said, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that means. Oh, the Bible's easy. The Bible's not hard. Psalms 120 to 134. Psalms of Degrees. You know what they do? Those Psalms take you through the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, and in the millennium, one step at a time, or by degrees. They walk you through, showing you every aspect of the second coming and the millennium and the, and the, and the tribulation, one step at a time. Oh, and I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, Psalms 139. I got to put this one in. Psalms 139. You're going to die someday. You really are. I mean, I don't know how to tell, break the news to you. You're going to die someday. No man lives forever. Boy, maybe some of you go in the rapture. You know, I've always thought, I always thought, you know, every, we all get this mindset. We all think that going in the rapture is a glorious thing and dying in a hospital bed someplace is a terrible thing. Or get, you know, we see car wrecks, you know, gruesome things, hear gruesome stories, how people are killed. And because we think of things in the natural, you see, we think that, oh, it would be a lot. We think, that, we think that in dying, going fast and better and quicker is the way to go. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible says that you go quick both ways. But you see, when you see 6 o'clock news with people splattered all over the highway, or you see this, or you see that, or you see people jumping out of the burning buildings of the Twin Towers, or some of the terrible stories that you hear about how people died, because we look at it in such a human fashion, or you know about somebody wasting away in a hospital bed someplace and dying, how many times I've heard somebody say, well, when I go, I want to go quick. I want a heart attack just takes me out. I want a bullet right between the eyes. I want this. I want that. I want to go in my sleep. Well, if I had my choice, I wouldn't want to go at all. But you know what? We all got to go. Like the guy was going to be assassinated, going to be electrocuted, or, you know, he's going to be killed for his crime, you know, crime of capital murder in the, in the country he was in. And they brought him in there and they said, okay, he said, you're going to kill you, you're going to die, but you know what, in our country we give you, a, you can choose how you want to die. The guy said, no problem, how about old age? <laughs> that was not one of the choices. 
You know what Psalm 139 does? It shows you, step by step, how that some people are going to die and go into rapture, and how some people die in a hospital bed. Now, personally, I always thought, when I read Revelation chapter 19, I mean, I'd like to go in a rapture because the Bible says we come back on white horses. And I know how many people, I can figure out how many people down through history must have already died. And the truth of the matter is, if you die and miss the rapture, or you die before the rapture, you've got a good chance of getting a better horse than somebody that goes in a rapture. In fact, this always bothered me. Over there in the Old Testament, there's somebody that comes back on white asses, and I always thought those were the people that went in the rapture because there was no more horses left. That's probably not true. <laughs> infinite God with infinite stars, certainly he can make infinite horses. You know what I'm saying? I know who comes back on the white asses. You know? Not you. Okay. Jimmy does, though. <laughs> you know what that psalm tells you? That psalm tells you that some of you are going to go in the rapture. That psalm also tells you that some of you are going to die at home. You're going to die on the highway. You're going to die in a hospital bed. You're going to miss the rapture. And what that great psalm tells you, you know what? Dying in a hospital bed is just as glorious as going up in the rapture. It's an incredible experience. And because we look at death from such a human standpoint, and I'm not saying I got all the answers on it or I look forward to it. I'm just telling you what the book says. I'm telling you, that book says that if you go in the wings of the morning or the shadow of darkness cover you, either way, God is with you. Incredible psalm. Incredible psalm. Want to learn how to die? Want definitive passage on it? Psalms 139. It's not First Thessalonians that talks about the fact that you know, comfort one another, we shall all be mourned, we'll sleep, we'll see them. You know, it's not that at all. You want the bottom line? Bottom line, Psalms 139. 139. 139. Psalms 139. Then I couldn't leave this passage without giving you this. Psalms 118, verse 8. Turn to it. I couldn't leave you without this one. You know, there's 31,176 verses in your King James Bible. 31,176. You know what the middle, middle verse is in your Bible? Psalms 118, verse 8. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. Out of 31,176 verses, the middle verse in your King James 6 and 11 is Psalms 118, verse 8, which says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but there's 14 words in that verse. You can't get one center word. You've got to get two center words. What are the two center words in verse 9 or verse, uh, verse 8? It's the Lord. You've got a book that's got 31,176 verses in it. You split that down, the middle two words in that Bible are the Lord. You say, it's true of an NIV. Uh-uh, they leave out five verses. Every verse ain't the same. It's true in ASV. They leave out 13 verses. Theirs isn't the same. There's only one book in the universe, one book in the world. One book in the world that when you split down 31,176 verses and come down to the middle two words in that verse, it's the Lord. That's some book you got. Now let's look at the book of Psalms here in the last few moments we got here. Let's look at the book of Psalms, and I want to lay it out for you doctrinally, inspirationally, and historically. I've given you a lot of stuff. I told you how at the beginning it's a story of two men, a wise man and a foolish man. That book is laid out around two men. One of them's a wise man, one of them's a foolish man. And you're going to find that that's the whole key. And how you lay it out, it's real easy. Let's look at it historically first. Historically, the man of Psalms 1, where it says, Blessed is the man that walketh that not after the counsel of the ungodly. Historically, that's David. And David is God's man. You know that. 
And the Bible says that uh, when you come through here, you're going to find David as a type of the wise man. You'll find David is the key to all three applications here, because historically, when you read the book of Psalms, here's what you got. And I don't know if you know it or not, but the whole book of Psalms breaks down uh, in, in a couple of different aspects here. When you look at David's life historically, you've got passages where David is out of fellowship with God, and he's running from God, and he's lost faith in God. You've got passages where David is trying to get right with God. He knows he's wrong, and he's trying to get back to God. And you've got passages where he's back right with God, and he's on top of the world, and it's him and God. Whole book of, whole book of Psalms breaks down in those three things, doctrinally, historically, inspirationally. For David, David is a picture of a real man who lived 1,000 B.C., Yet when you study his life in, in, the, in the Old Testament, you'll find there was times that David got out of fellowship with God. You will find that times when David is flat out of fellowship with God. He's a long way from God. And those will be typified by the Psalms where somebody's in deep despair. Somebody's in deep, dark sin. Somebody's struggling. Somebody's having all kinds of problems in their life. Then you'll find times where David comes to his senses and David tries to get right with God. And, you, and does get right with God. And you'll find those typified in the Psalms where he comes back to God. And he's asking God to forgive him. You'll find in Psalm 51 in David's life, not only the picture of you and me and my life of how we get into sin, but you'll find how to get rid of your sin and get back with God. Psalm 51 is the greatest psalm. It's the definitive psalm in the Bible showing you what 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is all about. Oh, we throw it around, 1 John 1. If we're faithful just to confess our sin, he's faithful just to forgive us our sin, because it's more righteousness. Oh, just confess your sin. Hey, you want a, you want a definition of that? Psalm 51, man. Psalm 51 will break that thing down and show you every aspect of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Then in Psalms 89, you got what's commonly called the sure mercies of David. you got a picture of grace, New Testament grace, and the Old Testament law, typified by David's life. Oh, yeah, you'll find the book of Psalms breaks down three ways. Historically, David in sin, David when he's trying to get back with God and confessing his sin, and then you'll find when David's sitting on top of the world, reigning as king, right with God, right in the Word of God, and everything just perfect in his life. Doctrinally, doctrinally, David again, a type of the nation of Israel. And you'll find in a doctrinal sense, the book of Psalms breaks down three ways. Pictures of the tribulation, Pictures of the millennium, pictures of the second coming. You know what you find? You find David typified as a nation of Israel. I told you, Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man, was a picture of the nation of Israel. Doctrinally, David typifies the nation of Israel going through the last three and a half years, or going through the, uh, the end of the tribulation and going into the millennium. And you're going to find that there's tribulation psalms in there where a man is running from God trying to get right. You'll find in this time that this man is praying, God, how long, how long, how long? It's David. And you'll find those prayers are typified in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, where the soul's under the altar, where they're saying, how long, God, how long? We're being persecuted. We're in tough time. God, how long, how long do we have to endure with this? When are you going to help us? When are you going to help us? You'll find it in Psalms 13, Psalms 12, Psalm 17, Psalm 22, Psalm 55, Psalm 60, and on and on it goes. You'll find pictures of David typifying the nation of Israel going through the tribulation period doctrinally where he's saying to God, God, I'm in deep problems. I'm in deep sin. My enemies are after me. They're trying to kill me. They're setting nets for me. They're putting snares for me. God, what am I going to do? Picture of the Jew in the tribulation period. Then you got the second coming Psalms. Those will be Psalms would ask God to come back. You'll find those in Psalms 10, Psalms 23, Psalm 68, Psalm 70, 
Psalms 82. Those Psalms will run like this. Lord, how long before you come back? Arise, O God, and deliver us. God, you standeth in the door of the mighty. Come back, O Lord. God, where are you? Come back. Arise. Let your light shine upon us. You'll find that's a picture of the nation of Israel going through the tribulation period and they're looking for the second coming of Christ. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that they're to look up and lift up their head. Their redemption draweth nigh. And they're looking for that. Then you come to the millennial psalms. The millennial psalms are a picture of David on the throne worshiping God. Oh, those will be Psalm 47, Psalm 48, Psalm 66, Psalm 76. Those will be the psalms that talks about clapping your hands. Those will be the psalms that we talk about in like Psalm 66 that says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, people, nations in the millennium. Because he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. This will be the Hallelujah Psalm. Psalms 106, 111, 112, 113, 135, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. All talking about the great majesty of God, the power of his glory, and God, and the happiness, and the joy, and all of the things that dominate this earth. When Christ comes back, sits on the throne, puts Israel back in the land, and they're the tree planted by the river of waters, their fruit never, their leaf never withers, and after the tribulation time when, they, when they're in deep sin, and the second coming Psalms when they ask God to come back, and then he comes back and whisks them into the millennium. But oh, that's why you have those joyous Psalms. And that's how it breaks down. Historically. Doctrinally. Ah, but there's one more. Ah, oh, what a fitting one to end on. By the way, all this up to this point was my introduction. Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaves also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Historically, it's David. When he's in fellowship, trying to get right with God, and when he is right with God. Doctrinally, Israel. Out of fellowship with God, trying to get right with God, in the millennium with God on the throne, and just as happy as a pig in mud. Inspirationally, Psalms chapter 1, you and me. See, I told you when we started this that Psalms chapter 1 was a prelude to the whole book, and that's true. But there's more to it than that. Psalms chapter 1 is a prelude to life on planet Earth. You want happiness? Here's what I mean by the wisdom book. Here's where you get a glimpse of how this great wisdom book lays out. I'm telling you, man, it starts out simply saying this, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. You know, 67 times in the book of Psalms, you'll find the word blessed or blessed. When you read through the book of Psalms from an inspirational application, you know what you got? You got a picture of me and you. You got a picture of me and you when we're out of fellowship with God. You got a picture of me and you when we're trying to get right with God. Now you got a picture of me and you when we're right with God and we're on top of it and we're hitting on all eight cylinders with God. That's what you got. And when he says blessed is the man, the first thing you can take from that is that God wants to bless you. God doesn't want you to live. God doesn't want you to live without the blessings of God. God never intended you to. When he starts out that psalm, it's a, not only a prelude to the book, it's a prelude to your life. Blessed is the man. But you know what? The blessings are conditional. God doesn't come down and bless you because you deserve it. He doesn't bless me because I deserve it because we don't deserve it. 
The blessings of God are like everything else that God gives man outside of salvation. Salvation and His love are the only two things that are unconditional. Everything after that is conditional. Sure, God may take care of you. God may provide for you in spite of what you do for Him. But I'm talking about the blessings of God living the life of a victorious Christian life on top of the circumstances, no matter what happens on this planet, because you know where you and God are at. That's the man I'm talking about. And he says, blessed is the man. Sixty-seven times. But it's conditional. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. I don't know if you know it or not. I don't know if you picked it up and I just read it there. That book is such a wisdom book that it shows you out, it shows you out, shows you the progression. How every man and woman in this world gets out of fellowship with God. You know, there's a lot of God's people that ought to be here today that aren't. There's a lot of God's people in churches all around this city today that ought to be in churches that aren't. And there's a lot of people all across this world that are a long way from God today. And I'm not making any judgments on anybody. I'm just telling you this. When a man or a woman gets out of fellowship with God, there's only one way they get to that place. And that's the same for everybody. And look what it says. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. You see, you're to walk with God. And when you cease to walk with God, you only have one alternative. It says, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, standeth in the way of sinners, sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You see that progression? Once you start walking with God, you start walking with the world. Once you start walking with them, it's only a matter of time that you're standing with them. And once you stand with them long enough, it's only a matter of time you're sitting in right amongst them and you can't tell the difference between any of you. That's how it works. How it's always worked. And I'll tell you something else. It goes even beyond that. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not. In other words, the inference is, walk with God. Stay with God. He's your walk. But when you don't, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. That word counsel is a great word because that means to tell me and brings to my mind that you start listening to somebody else more than you do God. Somebody else has more influence in your life than the Word of God does. And pretty soon you start, you start listening to their counsel because you're walking with them. And it's ungodly counsel. It's come on out and do this. Oh, come on, let's go here. And purposely, on purpose, the devil keeps you out so late on Saturday night or gets you so busy doing everything else in your life that something's got to go. I've just got so much going on. How am I going to do all this? How do I balance all this? I've just got to get shed of something in my life. Oh, I know what it'll be. It'll be God. And that's the way it works. See, I run a stiff competition here. I only get two shots at you a week. Your friends get shots at you all the time. I got two times a week to say what's important. They got all week long and the buddies you hang out with to tell you all the other things that undo what I tell you and tell you that there's real more things important out there than being here. It's the way it works. Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sit of the seat of the scornful. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen a young man or a young lady that used to come to church, was on fire for, not here, just in my life over the years. I'm not talking about anybody here. I mean, if the shoe fits, wear it. But I'm not, I'm just telling you how this thing works. How many times they used to love God, walk with God, and wound up laughing and making fun of the things of God, laughing and making fun of the Word of God, laughing and making fun of God's people. You know why? Because the progression goes like this. Once you start listening to the ungodly, and then you start getting in the way of the sinners, like them, there's only one thing it can lend you to. That's being scornful of the things of God. 
And that's the way it works. You quit walking with God, you start walking with the counselly and godly. And pretty soon you're standing with them. And then pretty soon you're sitting with them. And you went from walking with God to being one of the vile things of this world, even though you're a child of God and on your way to heaven, we hope. Then the second thing he says is this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. There's the alternative. There's the alternative. Years ago, a mom and dad brought a 16-year-old, 14-year-old girl into my office. This girl had turned rebellious toward her parents. And she was seeing this guy that the parent didn't want her to see. And they were saved, she was saved. Well, the parents, you know, bring her into Bob, you know, the mystical, magical magician that could fix all things. You know, wave your magic wand, give her your spiritual fairy dust, you know, and make her all better. And so I brought him into me, and they had forbidden this girl to see this boy. She was sneaking out at night and seeing him, you know, and all kinds of things, you know. And the parents were at work saying, you know, what do we do? What do we do? You know, we don't know what to do. What do we do, you you know? And I try to tell them, you know, shoot the kid from the roof of the house, and your problems are over. But they didn't want to do that. And, and i never forget this. So they brought this girl in. And I'm trying to, you know, first of all, I don't want to be here. Because, number one, I can't fix this. Parents waited too long. See how long they wait? They waited about... 13 years too late. But now it is. Bring her in, you know, fix her. And I know where this is going. If I don't fix her, it's going to be my fault. See, I know how this goes. See. So I'm taking a very, <clears throat> I'm almost on the side of the girl because I like the guy she's seeing, but I like the parents. But anyway, that's another story. <clears throat> so I'm sitting there and I'm just listening. <clears throat> and she's telling me, she's screaming and she's bawling and she's yelling, you know, and she's just, she's just ranting and raving and she's telling me how much she, she, she loves this guy and she just, she just can't live without him, and she just loves this guy, and he's the only one that understands her. You know, her parents don't understand her. He's so good to her, and he, he, she loves him, and she doesn't want to live without him, and if she can't have him in her life, she's going to kill herself. That's what got her parents nervous, you know. She, that's when all it when all, hey, tell you, when all it doesn't else work, you don't get your own way. You just threaten to kill yourself with your parents. They'll do anything you want to do. My kids, I just said, here, you better take two bullets because you're a bad shot. But anyway... <clears throat> They, they, they were, they, she says, I love him. I just can't live without him. I love him. I love him. And I'm sitting there listening to this trade go on for about 20 minutes. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is a good lesson for me because I need to mark this down. She's been standing here the last 15 minutes telling me how she can't live without this guy, how she loves him, how she, he's the only one in the world for her, and how she just doesn't want to live without him. And without him, life is not worth going on. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? That's exactly what my attitude ought to be toward God in that book. That should have been her attitude. That ought to be your attitude. You know what happened to her life? If she ever did, she quit walking with God and started standing. She stopped walking with the right, wrong crowd, and then she was standing, and then she was sitting, and you couldn't tell her apart from anybody else. Now she's talking like an unsaved person. Incredible. But his delight shall be in the law of the Lord, and in his law that he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Oh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out his roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall be careful in the drought, 
neither shall cease from yielding fruit. What a great verse that parallels that. You know what it says? It says that you and I ought to be like a tree planted by the river of waters, and there's only one tree that is in the Bible. That's the tree of life. That's why Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. You know what it says? You're like a tree planted by the river of water. The water is the word of God. You know what that Jeremiah says? It says the first thing you've got to do is get your roots down and get your roots into the water. And when your roots are into the water, you see, it's never what you look like you are on top. It's where your roots go underneath that nobody sees that make you what you really are. Oh, I've seen some great trees, but brother, when the adversity came, they folded up like a deck of cards. Why? Their roots were not grounded in the water, and that's the key. The water is the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God, and men in the Bible are like trees, and when you're planted by the river of waters, you get your roots down in that water, and whatever comes, you will bring fruit in your season. And let me just say a word about that in closing here. There's a season to your fruit bearing. There's more to this time and season stuff than just deals with the nation of Israel. God gives you a life to live. The book of Psalms says it's three score and ten. That's seventy. If you get any more, you got grace. But the bottom line is this. There's no accident that you were born where you were born and God put you where you put you and God put the things in your life because God has something He wants you to do. But you know what? You better learn this lesson. You don't pick apples in February. And you don't go out and pick strawberries in November. And you don't go out unless you live in Florida. You don't go out. You don't go up in Missouri, out in the middle of February in a blinding snowstorm, and look for peaches on a tree, or go out and trim your garden and cut your grass. Let me tell you something. There is a season to everything, and you, as a child of God, with the work that you've got to do for God, you've only got a season to do it, and you better be busy in the season that God gave you, and you better orchestrate your life and get out of your life whatever you need to get out and get in whatever you need to get in out of the five wisdom books to make sure when you're on the farm and you're plowing the field that you're getting the job done in the season God called you to do. And don't ask me to say that again because I can't remember what I just said. But I know it was good. Tree planted by the river of water <coughs> that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. And then he says, and he shall be like a tree planted by the river of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. We talk about family trees. That's what he's talking about here. You're a tree. You bear leaves that bear fruit. That's your children. That's your family. And the greatest security that you have as a believer, knowing, as the Bible says, and teaches in the book of Psalms, you train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he's not part from that. A lot of God's people just got the first part of that verse. They train up their child, and away he goes. That's not what it says. And I heard a lot of guys teach this absolutely wrong today because of the fact that so many parents have lost their kids that they say, well, that verse simply means that if you, if you, you know, when your kid goes off down the road and he gets out in the world or she gets out in the world, you know, that the promise is they'll come back. That's not what the verse says. The verse simply says this. The key is train. See, the train, train up a child. You raise, raise, you raise rabbits, you raise corn, you raise chickens, you raise whatever, hamsters. You don't raise children. You train children. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, that promise is, you know what, there is an absolute guarantee for every mom and dad that's raising little kids right now, and that's what our elementary is all about. That's what we're trying to do. That's what Halloween's all about. Think I give a 
a flip about great, great pumpkins and costumes and, 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 and all the things and candy and, well, leave the candy out of that. And the other thing going with it, the bottom line is there's moms and dads out there that are raising kids. And that Bible has something that they need. And that Bible has something that when they face those kids, because the Bible, we do we get the book of Daniel. There's coming an evil day that every kid faces where he comes face to face with the world reality. And it's based on where your roots is at, down in the Word of God, as the tree that protects the leaves and keeps your fruit bearing. His leaf also shall not wither.